listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Pastor Andy Squires. All right, everybody, don't go behaving on me this morning, okay? Yeah, there you go. That's what I like. Thank you, Tanner. I can always count on you. Oh, man. Oh, man. During worship, when the, those guys started singing that song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion, when they got to verse 3, it goes like, Every vow we've broken and betrayed, you are the faithful one. And from the garden to the grave, bind us together, bring us shalom. And I was just, oh, God, I was losing it. I was losing it. Man. Man, I was over here and I was, all I was, I was sitting in that seat and I was like, you can't run up there right now. You can't run up to, on that stage right now and start preaching. But that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to get on the stage and grab the microphone and I wanted to start preaching right then and there because I was sitting in my seat and I was, all I could, I could see that verse in the Bible where that, where Jesus walking by that blind guy and, and the blind guy's like, son of David, don't pass me by. But he didn't say, son of David, don't pass me by. He said, son of David, don't pass me by. He said, son of David, don't pass me by. And I realized how, how much we behave ourselves when we walk into these churches all over the world. And we try to behave ourselves. We try to act right. And we get disappointed in ourselves because we don't have our lives together we put on these masks and we sit in these pews and we sing these songs. And all the while, son of David is passing us by. And the only reason is, is because none of us are raising our voice like we should be. And the reason why we don't is because we're afraid. We're afraid if we want to call out, if we call out like we feel the Lord drawing on us to call out that we'll be rejected, that somebody will tell us that we don't belong or somebody will tell us that we should be ashamed for behaving like that. But I want to tell you, church, that that is where the Lord is. He's out there in that place that's going to make your neighbor uncomfortable. He's out there in that place where you might have to look like a fool for a minute you might not have to live your whole life that way. Maybe you will. I don't know. But I'm just saying like at some point we're going to have to connect into a little bit of our humanity in order to connect to the Lord himself. God, all I could think about this morning when I woke up is that the spirit is moving. And I thought to myself, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means. It's just this phrase that was just going off in my head. The spirit is moving. The spirit is working. The spirit is doing a work. The spirit is doing something. And I think the last time I spoke, I, I got a little bit vulnerable with y'all and it was a little bit more vulnerable than I would want to get actually to tell you the truth. And <clears throat> But then I realized this thing is like, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a great teacher. I didn't go to seminary and learn about the Bible. I'm not full of good knowledge. I don't have things to teach you. All I have to give you is what the Lord gave to me. Sometimes that comes out very sloppily. But man, 
I feel like the best stuff that the Lord has to share, to give between each of us is going to come out very sloppily. And if we're afraid of that sloppy mess, if we're afraid of that sloppy wet kiss, then we are really going to be missing the joy of knowing the Lord himself. Because it's not really about how much information that I can give to you. How many more church services can you endure and hear good messages? And leave completely unchanged in your life. Because the fact is, it's so easy just to go through the, the, the motions, isn't it? I don't want to go through the, the motions in my marriage. I want to be known by Amy. And Amy wants to be known by me. And it's no different between us. The spirit is at work and the spirit is calling us to a place of vulnerability so that we can be known and we can know one another. That's not even my Christmas message. (laughs) Oh, man. Thank you, Lord. Are you so thankful this morning to be alive? If, If you're not thankful for anything else, just be thankful that you're alive this morning. Life is such a precious and good gift. You just wake up in the morning. You might be depressed, but at least you're depressed and alive. That's a great place to start. Oh, man. So earlier this week, I got into a really bad fight with my next door neighbor. She's a widow and she's almost 90 years old. Let's just say that if you get into a fight with a 90-year-old widow, even if you win, you've already lost. (laughs) So imagine me yelling at this little old lady. It was not anything I'm proud of, but she had been behaving pretty badly towards us. And we at least needed to have a frank conversation. So in the spirit of Christmas, I told her a thing or two. And I gave her the what for, and I stated my case with her lips trembling and her voice shaking. I know, I know. (laughs) I should be ashamed, and I am. I'm, yeah, thanks, Tanner. (laughs) I'm telling you all of this because it's kind of a humorous depiction of how actually hard it is to love your neighbor as yourself. The thing is, the thing that Jesus said to do, this goal that he gave us, is mostly an ideal that is impossible to live up to. It is a recipe for failure, and it is an exercise in futility. But this is what happens when people, you and I, when we bump up against each other, isn't it? Each one of us has our own wound. Each one of us has a a wound that is unique to us. And when my wound bumps up against your wound, I just come away with the judgment that you're weird and that something's wrong with you. And I then come under the curse of my own judgment. And you're probably thinking the same thing about me. But each one of us is at a different point in our process of realizing that we are each the beloved of God. 
where you sit this morning, whatever state you find yourself in, you might consider yourself a spiritual giant this morning. You might consider yourself a beggar. Wherever you are, whatever point in that maturing journey you are, you are 100% the beloved of God. And if you leave today knowing nothing else, hearing nothing else that I've said, you are the beloved one of God. Some of us don't know this very well yet. And we come across as rude, condescending, aloof, judgmental, cranky, or just plain old mean. We have an inability to be generous towards others because we have an inability to be generous toward ourselves. Many of us have been profoundly formed by fear and shame. And so the lack of generosity in me was bumping up against the lack of generosity in my 90 year old neighbor, which almost led us to having a fist fight. And, and we both go to church. She and I, we go to different churches, but my church is better than hers. So I, so I'm winning that fight, right? That's a joke. That's not, that's not true. So yesterday she came over with a plate of brownies crying and asking for forgiveness. And we just hugged her and we pressed the restart button on our relationship. So that's good news, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. So I want to read to you a scripture to start out this morning. If you have your Bible or your iPhone, you can open up to Isaiah 60. And I'm going to read from the New King James Version. And this is a prophecy that's being spoken to people different than you're going to hear it this morning. When this prophecy was originally given, there was a... Near time fulfillments of these words. The people who are originally hearing this prophecy weren't thinking about it in terms of God coming to them. They were really hearing it as the nation of Israel being restored. Okay. But if you've studied scripture enough, you'll realize that many times there's something being said in the scripture And it's being received by many different people across many different times. And the spirit of God is smart enough to accurately dispense meaning to it according to each age. So we're going to read this prophecy looking backwards at the birth of Christ. From Isaiah 60, it goes like this. Oh gosh, I didn't write the verse down. This might be verse one. I'm not sure. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness shall cover the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, I think I mentioned the last time I spoke that I that we were in the season 
season of Advent, but that I personally didn't know anything about Advents. I didn't grow up in a church that kept the church calendar. So if you're like me, Advents is just a fancy word um, for which you have no meaning or understanding. That's the case for me. Okay. So I stand here talking about Advent this morning, not knowing much about it. But I did a little Google search and um, did a little study on it. And uh, in, in, in a normal church that's celebrating Advent, they don't talk about Christmas until Christmas Eve. In fact, the, the first three weeks in the season of Advent, the messages are to be solely about the darkness that covers the earth. And Christmas is supposed to be unveiled on Christmas Eve because it's supposed to be a bursting force forth of light into the darkness. And there's something to that. There's something about understanding the particularness of the darkness that covered the earth when Christ came. And there's something about understanding the particularness, not the general idea of the world being covered in darkness, but that there's a specific and particular darkness that is covering the earth then and covering the earth now. And the light of the world showed up, not in a poetic darkness, but in a very dark darkness. The season of Advent is the acknowledgement of a world covered over in darkness, like we see in Isaiah 60. You don't have to be a genius or a prophet to recognize darkness. We have been educated in it from early on. We are born into it. You grow up in it. You see it in the world. You see it in people. You see it in yourself. It comes in different ways and forms. Darkness is not something you have to study to know. Most conduits of modern communication are broadcasting the happenings of darkness on a second by second basis. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. The season of Advent is the acknowledgement of the world covered over in darkness. Like we see in Isaiah 60. Oppression and death are the news of the day then. And that is nothing new. The constant conflict between powers for power is nothing new. We are a people waiting for a light to come. We're waiting for someone to come and save us from our blindness. In all of our sophistication and knowledge, you might think that by now we would have solved hatred and anger between nations. You would think that we, with all our access to connection, that we would have solved loneliness. But we are still a world haunted by a great sense of not belonging anywhere. And the worst news of all is that we believe that darkness is here to stay because we believe that that's who we really are. Someone somewhere told us that we were intrinsically bad. That who you were in the most real version of you is very, very bad. Someone somewhere told us that we deserve to be shamed. Someone shamed us. Someone somewhere told us that we deserved to be separated from God. Someone told us that we were too sinful to be loved. Someone told us that who we were was not enough 
and the anger of God was mounting up against us. Someone told us that we needed to be saved and the person we needed to be saved from was God himself. I learned as a very young boy to be ashamed. I learned to hide very early on. The prevailing spirit of the age is that people have no value and their sin, whatever it may be, makes them even more worthless. For some of us, it's not even a matter of sin. Some of us are just ashamed of the person that we are. You hear it everywhere you go. You hear it from pulpits. You hear it from preachers of every kind. I didn't even go to church when I was a little kid and I heard that message. You hear it from other kids in your class. You hear it from careless adults. The world is hostile and we learn very early on to hide from it in order to survive. We hide in the darkness. We cover ourselves And we hide away. Does anybody know what I'm talking about in here? But God did not come to save us from himself. God did not come to save us from himself. He came to save us from ourselves. He came to save us from the lies that we believe about life. He came to save us from the lies of fear and shame, from the lies of power, from the lies of oppression and control. He came to show us that who he is, is grace and love. He came to bring us back to him. He came to reveal that his heart is wide open to every single person. He did not come in order to change his mind about us. His mind was already made up. That's why he came. He already believed in us. That's why he came. He came to fully reveal himself in order to change our minds about him. He came to fully reveal himself in order to change our minds about him and our minds about ourselves. This is why the story of the coming Christ child is so precious and important. It's not a cute story of God disguised as a little baby. It is the proclamation of what God is like. It is the proclamation of what God believes. It is the proclamation of what he meant before time ever began. That he desires intimacy with his friends, with his daughters, with his sons, with every single person whom he created in his image and in his likeness. One of the reasons why it's difficult to love your neighbor Is because they have a wound and their wound is bumping up against my wound. And I'm judging them through my wound. And so oftentimes the thing that I'm feeling, the thought that I'm thinking about that person says nothing about that person being made in the beautiful image and likeness of their creator. I'm mostly just seeing that they're cranky and mean. 
I'm mostly just seeing that they're closed off to me. And what do I do in turn? I close off to them. Isn't it interesting how the way you think about something leads the way you behave toward that person? Isn't it interesting how what you believe about somebody else affects the way you actually feel about that person? Can that be said of how we relate with God? If we believe that God is angry, maybe we'll act to him that way. If we believe, if we if we think in our minds that God is far away, that God is somewhere else, that God is hard to get to, that God is majestic and glorious and holiness and has no business wanting or desiring to be with me, then that, that might be the way we approach him. I remember early on in my walk with God, I, I, I would hear all these songs about God and his great majesty And I could easily sing them because in my mind, God was distant and far away. And I I imagined him to be all powerful and all in control. And that was very easy for my mind. So it was easy for me to sing those songs about God being distant, far away and powerful. And then somewhere along the line, somebody started talking to me about God being a good father. And it totally blew my mind. I could not believe the words that they were saying. I didn't believe the words that they were saying. When somebody told me that God was good, I did not and could not believe that because the imaginations of my mind said that God was holy, distant, and powerful. My belief about God led my behavior to God. It was very difficult when people started telling me about the love of God or that God was a good father, it wasn't what was given to me early on. So when that new idea, that new thought came into my being, that God was grace, that God was love, that God was gentle, that God was kind, that God was walking with me in suffering and not far away somewhere else. It took me a minute. I didn't get that right away. You know, Richard Foster says that we live in the age of distraction. And I've realized this. Any ground that I gain in my pursuit of God will mostly look like me stopping what I'm doing and meditating on the goodness of God. Apart from my iPhone, apart from my computer screen, apart from just all the busyness of the world. You can't get fully away from it ever in your life. This is not what this sermon's about. But my experience of God is deeply connected to time spent with him. And that may not even mean you reading your Bible. It may not even mean you writing in your prayer journal. It may just mean you sitting in the silence on your couch and meditating on the goodness of God.
So every single one of us are created in his image and likeness. But, but this is hard to believe. It's hard to believe that it could be so easy to be loved by God. Because there is a darkness that covers the earth and covers people. We are like those found in the gospel of Luke who were waiting for the consolation of Israel to come. We too need relief from oppression. We too are waiting for God to intervene in a mighty way. All the messianic prophecies found in the prophets were well known to those under Roman occupation. Their expectation was that the promise of Messiah coming would set them free from the oppression of Rome and restore the nation of Israel back to its former glory. They believed in a God who would who promised to intervene. They had Bible to support their hope. They believed that God would come in actual time in history and actually set them free from their enemies. But what they imagined and what happened were so different. And we can't blame them, can we? Because they are us. They were a people covered in darkness. Just like we are now. And the interventionist God that we pray to has the audacity to come intervening as a little baby. We want God to solve our problems, to intervene in power over our enemies, but he shows up in the ultimate weakness. He comes proclaiming his inability to kill our enemies because destroying the enemy is not what babies do. The Christ child is the proclamation of God's weakness. The Christ child is the proclamation of God's humility. The Christ child is God's proclamation of his desire to be known by the world. The Christ child is God's intervention. And how does God intervene? He he doesn't intervene by coming to us as a metaphor. The Christ child is not a metaphor for what God is like. The Christ child is what God is like. The Christ child is what God is doing. The Christ child is what God does. Babies are vulnerable. They are weak. They are not good at solving problems. They need to be cared for. They need love. They need to belong. That's an interesting way of thinking about God, isn't it? We're not very comfortable talking about the weakness and inability of God. There's not a whole lot of language found in Christian literature that is actively proclaiming the weakness and inability of God. But how God comes is not a metaphor. 
How God comes is what he's doing. How God comes is his program. He shows up weak. He shows up vulnerable. He shows up in need. I hope I'm making some of you uncomfortable this morning. I really do. What God is like is what we are like. And this kind of vulnerability is what makes intimacy possible. So here's the thing. Self-disclosure is very risky. Self-disclosure. If you revealed your true self, you would be taking a massive risk with whoever you revealed yourself to. And why is that? Because when you make yourself vulnerable, you open yourself up to massive injury. This is why we are very seldom vulnerable with each other. And here we see creator God coming in the most vulnerable, intimate way, not as a metaphor, but showing us the actual way to being human. God took a massive risk to disclose to us what he was really like. He wasn't being ironic when he came as a baby. The only way that love is transmitted from one person to another is through intimacy. And you cannot have intimacy unless you have vulnerability. The creator God of all creation too powerful, too majestic to describe, saw fit to disclose his heart of hearts to us. He made himself as vulnerable as possible. He put himself into our hands. In the hands of Mary and Joseph, God placed himself into the arms of humanity. And so this darkness that covers everything, as powerful as it appears is no match for the revealing of God as a human baby. Let me say that again. The darkness that covers everything, as powerful as it is, is no match for a little tiny baby. Make no mistake, darkness is real. The sin which I have committed is real. It's part of my story, but it's not who I am. The priest Zacharias prophesied at the circumcision of his son, John the Baptist in Luke chapter one. And you child will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of God with which the day spring meaning Jesus from on high has visited us. Here's the key to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So when I think of sitting in darkness and the shadow of death, I think of all the times in my life when I have struggled with self-loathing and shame and fear. And I know 
This is a ubiquitous feeling. And I think sometimes we kind of all just kind of take this for granted that everybody's got this background program running in their life. But I just like to call it out for a second because I, I believe that the first step to healing anybody or anyone or any group of people is the exposure of that thing. That's why we're talking about it today. When I was mentioning the work of the spirit earlier on, um, just talking with some friends that go to Queen City earlier this week, we were kind of comparing notes with the last few Sundays and maybe the last couple months even. And, and, and we've, we've gotten this sense that the spirit of God is revealing shame in people's lives in a very real way in order to deal with it. In order so that people can actually leave that thing behind for good for once and for all. Do you know that feeling when you're laying your head down on your pillow at night and you're trying to go to sleep and you have a memory of something that happened to you years previous and that overwhelming sense of sickening comes into your body and you begin to feel like all of the life force that you have within yourself is somehow going away. Isn't it amazing how you can be crushed by shame in the middle of the night? And I'm here to tell you that that does not belong to you. Somebody may have tried to put that on you. Somebody may have told you that that's who you are in the core of your DNA, but that is not who you are. Whether you committed a crime or whether the crime was committed to you, whatever your experience that connected that shame to you somewhere, the Christ child came through the mercy of God for the remission of sins, not just to grit and bear you, but so that you could come into a place of being free from that shame, free from that fear of death once and for all so that you could enjoy him and you could enjoy being who you are. Most people that I talk to in my pastoral ministry, somewhere along the line are dealing with this feeling like they wish they were somebody else. And that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Who you are. I said this last time, but you are a chip off the old block. And the old block that you're a chip off of is the one who created you. And before you were cursed by the fall of Adam, you were blessed in the creation of God. You didn't ask to be born into a hostile and fallen world. You were born into it. And before that curse of Adam ever rested in your heart, ever rested on your mind, there was a place of original innocent where God breathed his blessing on you. He dreamed of you in his heart before time began. He saw you in his heart. He got excited about who you were going to be. And he formed you in his image. He made you with his hands and he breathed his spirit into you. And his whole plan of redemption and salvation 
has been to get you to a place where you would stop believing the lies of fear and death and shame and all of that mess. And that you would see who he actually created you to be. Have you ever, have you ever done this thought experiment? What would, what would I look like if I wasn't afraid of anything? Have you ever done this thought experiment? What if I had no shame working in my mind ever, ever, ever? Think of how, think of how fun your life would be if you didn't hate yourself in the mornings. The darkness that covers everything as powerful as it appears is no match for the revealing of God as a human baby. Make no mistake, darkness is real. The sin which I, oh, I already read all that. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna skip forward, all right. The feelings of shame that arise in your mind when your head is on your pillow, the memory of the thing that you have done, the memory of the thing that was done to you, the thing too painful to reveal to anyone, the thing that you must pretend does not exist in order to survive. But light has come through the mercy of God. The incarnation is the proclamation that the sins of the world are forgiven. The world lost in darkness and the shadow of death did not disqualify it from God's love. It did not repel God. It attracted God. And when we talk about the world being in darkness, don't for one second think that scripture is being poetic. When God came as a baby, forgiving the world, the world was specifically dark. All the war, murder, infanticide, greed, lust, and rage that is particular to the world in which we now live was 2,000 years ago in full bloom. If you or I were to assess the world, we might judge it unworthy of God's love. We might even say all the darkness and death disqualified us from the love of God. But the thing that you're sure The thing that you are sure repels God is really the thing which draws him to you. The thing that you are sure repels God. The thing, the thing about yourself that you are sure repels God is the thing that actually endears him to you. A light has come. Your failure is no surprise to anyone. Only self-righteous people are surprised at human failure. Only moralists are surprised by sin. Only people wearing religious masks are surprised at the failure of others. Only people wearing masks of their own self-righteousness act aghast when people fall. The failure of the apostle Peter... His shameful denial of Jesus was not something that caused Jesus to throw him out. It was the point at which Jesus drew him even closer. When Jesus drew him in, he didn't even mention Peter's three denials. He said, Peter, do you love me? This was not a rhetorical question. 
This was God wanting to be loved by his friend. Peter finally cries out, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus was making sure that Peter knew that their intimacy was intact despite Peter's massive failure. Our downfall is never a point of severing, but it is always a point of contact. Jesus is always profoundly present in our weakness. Because the way of God is not to magnify our guilt and shame, but to take us to our beginning points in him. He is leading us back to our original innocence, our original love, our cleanness in heart and mind. He is not just washing away our sin. He is showing us who we really are. We are the beloved. That is what the light has come to reveal, not just the remission of sins so that we can die and go to heaven someday. The light has come to bring us out of all of the darkness of shame and all of the fear of death now and to guide our feet into the way of peace now. Why? Because this is who we are. At the very core of your DNA, of my DNA, we are built to walk the way of peace, to know all that heaven knows, to be guileless and innocent, to be holy as our heavenly father is holy. This is not an impossibility. This is who God created us to be. In my conflict with my neighbor early this week, it was a point of, um, you might say, frustration, it was a point of annoyance. It was, uh, it was the potential for division to happen between me and my neighbor. It had massive potential for us to go separate ways. But when I was talking earlier about the work of the spirit, I believe that that conflict with my neighbor was a work of the spirit that was meant to lead me into a place of weakness where I could receive her in her place of weakness with grace flowing back and forth one to another. This path, this, this, this path of peace that we're talking about is very inconvenient and it's not easy at all. And it never feels glorious hardly ever when you're first starting out. And sometimes the process takes much longer than a week. I mean, I was in a fist fight with her on Monday, but by Friday, we were sharing brownies together. Things don't always work out that timely, do they? But the work of the spirit means that we are trusting the work of God in our lives in everything that is before us. I'm almost done, guys. I know I'm being long-winded this, t- this morning. Whew. Let's read this in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 23. And I'm going to close out with this. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simon. And this man was just and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simon took Jesus up into his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And I love this so much. I'm always looking for God's intents. I'm, I'm always looking for what he intends. What, what's, what's your intention, Lord? He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will even pierce through your own soul also that the heart, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I mean, that's just, that's just a powerful moment with this man who's, his whole life been waiting for the consolation of Israel to happen. And this little baby shows up and he's, he's not going to see the end from the beginning. He's about to die, but it doesn't even matter to him because the Holy spirit has spoken this thing to him and he's just overjoyed. But what he speaks is so powerful here that this, this baby child is going to end up really offending so many people. He's going to be piercing people through their souls with his words. And honestly, that's something we can be so thankful for. I'm so thankful that I can be going along in my life, kind of like dead as a doorknob, dead as a whatever, I don't know, dead as a dead horse, dead as dead things. And the word of the Lord comes to me and pierces me through my heart and soul and upends everything in my life. Aren't you so thankful that Jesus is confronting us in our deadness? Don't you have such a thankfulness in your heart that Jesus is confronting us in our unbelief? Man, the thing that I'm so thankful for that the Lord is not dealing with you, but the Lord is dealing with me in my own life. I'm so thankful that the work of the spirit that I saw 10 years ago continues today in my own life, even though it has taken some turns and it looks a little bit differently than it does now than it does. Then I can feel the spirit of God not leaving me alone. He's relentless. The spirit of God is relentless. But what's so interesting is that he's, he's relentless in his weakness. 
Where I'm finding him mostly is in my 90-year-old widow neighbor next door who's yelling at me to keep my garbage can off her lawn. I mean, the Lord is in every one of those things. You know what? There's nothing about your life ever. There's not one moment of your life that will ever be wasted. Even the days that you waste are not wasted in the Lord. Even the biggest mistakes of your life that you counted yourself out for the rest of your life from, those things are not wasted. That's the stuff that God works with. That's the stuff he does his best work with. I think the Lord wants to give us a gift this year. I think he wants to give us a Christmas gift this year. I think he wants us to become who we really are. Vulnerable with each other because we're not afraid of getting kicked out of the church because somebody finds out something about us. You can't get kicked out of God, everybody. Now you might have stuff you need to deal with. If I'm just being honest, I I, I don't want to invite anybody into um, a life of denial. You might have to do business with yourself. You might have to do business with people in your life. You may have hurt people. You, you might need to go to them and repent and, and make amends. It, it's, it's an active walk with the Lord. But I've found in the Lord that when I take just like an inch direction step towards him, like I just, I just say, I'm sorry in a whisper. And it's like, the floodgates of heaven just open up and all the grace that I'm so desperate for just starts pouring into my heart and my mind. That's what God's doing for his people. Why don't we stand up together? Joe Mark, you want to come close this out? Hey, Matt, why don't you come play the keys? Things are more anointed with keyboards. Father, we want to respond in our hearts today. We want to respond in our hearts. And um, there's a word for repentance that means we need to change our, it means to change your mind. And um, some of us have felt. Like we were unworthy. And uh, maybe we need to change our minds. Maybe we need to change our minds. Some of us have felt like we've been disqualified. And maybe we need to change our minds.
Well, we do. We do. Um, and I had this thought earlier. Jesus did come to destroy our enemies. And the first enemy he came to destroy was yourself. And he came to destroy your enemies by loving your enemies. So we wanted to destroy our own worst enemy by loving ourselves. It's not, it doesn't mean to be selfish, but some of us have not felt permission to love who God made you. Some of us have not felt like we've had permission to love who we are. And you know, it's made us love other people poorly because our base of operations has been a mess. But Jesus didn't come to defend you from God. He came to show you who God is. And God is not disappointed. He's working all things together for good. Well, Lord, I just want to pray. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm preaching again. I have nothing to add to Andy's message. That was beautiful, Father. But we do. We offer ourselves up in a new way to you. Lord, and we ask forgiveness. We ask you would forgive us for holding ourselves. For seeing ourselves poorly. For feeling like we had the power to do something that would keep you from loving us, Lord. And we offer ourselves up in a new way to be transformed into that thing, that person that you've created us to be all along, Lord. We do. And we give you permission to begin to unravel all the false ideas about ourselves and one another that we have built up over the years, Lord. And Holy Spirit, the other week I was asking the Lord, what is the Holy Spirit as the helper? What does the Holy Spirit come to help us do? That's how Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. He said, Holy Spirit is the helper. The Holy Spirit has come to help us to do the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit has come to help us transform. So we do, Lord. We ask that you would help us. You would walk us through this process of breaking down all the false things that we've built up around ourselves and around one another, Lord, we ask for your help to dig through our layers. Help us when we're afraid. It's a very scary thing sometimes, Lord, to do that. It's terrifying. But what's even more terrifying, Lord, is thinking about living the rest of our lives as someone that we're not, Lord. So we just give you permission to help us, to make us to give us the courage to allow you to dig through our labors, our labors, <laughs> Freudian slip. And to find the gold within us that's been there since we were born, since the moment we were made, since the moment you dreamed us up to find that gold. We give you permission to do the work. And I have this thought, even in darkness and confusion and uncertainty, God is working. God is working. And you see these patterns in scripture. In Genesis, there's darkness and chaos and God is working. In the Easter story, 
There's darkness, but God is working. In the Christmas story, there's darkness, but God is working. You could almost say he often does his greatest work in darkness and mystery. God often does his best work in the dark. And I was sitting here thinking about why is Santa Claus such an exciting story? We don't like to talk about Santa Claus in church. But if you know kids who believe in Santa Claus, it's a big deal. Maybe one day I'll tell you a story about a child who. It's not me. My parents refused to tell me the Santa Claus story, but. But why? It's because you go to sleep at night and in darkness, someone is conspiring for your good. And we take that story and we toss it like it's nothing, right? Right? Well, that story in some ways is a little more of the gospel than the stories we like to tell in church about Jesus sometimes. Because we don't want to believe this story of the man who's coming down our chimney, conspiring for our good while we're asleep. So we feel like that's silly, right? But what if I told you that the reality is there is a thing, a being, a person who in your confusion and in your uncertainty and in your doubt and in your darkness is conspiring for your good. Lord Jesus, we do, we ask that you would be with us when we don't understand. We ask that you would speak to us and you would give us the strength and the courage and the faith to walk forward even when we don't understand. Hey, um, I got this one thing that I want. Uh, this is kind of a point of action uh, it's, it's the week before Christmas and all through the house. Um, Christmas is better for some than it is for others. I don't quite know how to do this except to tell you this. As a church, let's pay attention to people who are in our community who are not having as good of a Christmas as we might be having. And if the Lord tells you to go put some cash in somebody's hand, don't argue with him when he tells you that. And could we just make a commitment as a church just to be keeping an eye out for our neighbors this, this season? Let's, let's do that together. Well, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to organize anything. I'm just putting this out there. Like if you want to give somebody some money that you know needs it, just go ahead and do it. Amen. All right, I think John Mark's already prayed. Um, we're going to have ministry teams up here on the front. Can we get the prayer team up here? If you have any prayer needs, we've got some folks here that would love to pray with you, pray over you. Um, have a great week. Hug somebody. Kiss somebody on the cheek. Give somebody a high five. Drive safely. <laughs> Don't leave quickly, though. Don't leave quickly. Stay and talk to some people and then take somebody out to lunch. We'll see you guys next week at 10 o'clock. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. 
For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.